Thanks for joining us for the 2018 7th Annual Stroke Conference, The Pulse of Stroke Rehabilitation. This conference is sponsored by Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. In this podcast lecture, Gretchen March presented, Why Don't We? Putting Evidence-Based Concepts into Practice. Gretchen is an advanced clinical specialist at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. This presentation was recorded on Thursday, November 1st, 2018 at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, Saddlebrook Campus, 300 Market Street, Saddlebrook, New Jersey. For more information about Kessler Foundation Research or Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, click on the links within the description of this podcast. Let's listen in. I entitled this, Why Don't We? So I wanted to start by asking a couple of questions. How many times have you asked yourself, why don't we questions, right? Like, why don't we eat better? How many of you have asked that question? Right? Okay, stand up. Whoever asked himself that question, stand up. If you ask yourself why you don't eat better, stand up. Okay? If you ask yourself, why don't I exercise more? Stand up. Okay? Come on. Right? If you ask yourself, why don't we put evidence into our practice? Stand up. Okay. So now the people who have stood up are nice and awake. Anybody who didn't stand up, stand up and sit down. Okay? And now we're all back. To, uh, now we're all back. Okay. So as a clinical specialist, I do a lot of mentoring with staff. I work a lot with the foundation. So I'm involved in a lot of the research, and I'm always reading things. So I don't know how many of you are also readers, but you find things and you say, wow, this is a great idea. I wish we did this. And so I'm always asking, why don't we? So I'm going to just review some evidence-based practice concepts for everybody. I want to talk a little bit about why this is so challenging for all of us. And it's across the board. It's not just therapy. It's not just nursing. It's case management. It's mental health. So things, getting things into practice from the research phase takes an inordinate amount of time, <laughs> as you know. I'm going to also review two current programs at Kessler that are evidence-based discuss how they were implemented and the challenges and um, positives with each one. Again, review challenges and review general results of participants in both of the programs. So first of all, why don't we get excited about presenting new information? So I did a little survey of some staff people at Kessler. And one thing I found, and I found this in a lot of literature and in a lot of nursing literature too, that there's a lack of confidence in your own knowledge. You're not really sure you know what the research is saying. So you don't feel comfortable telling other people because you, you haven't integrated it yet yourself. The idea of buy-in for new ideas. How many people have had this? You go to work, you say, I got this great idea, and people are like, oh, that'll never work. Does that happen? Oh, that'll never work. Oh, we can't do that. We don't have time to do that. That'll never work. Um, fear of appearing uncertain in front of other people. And this happens not just with research-based evidence practice things, but just new techniques or even just working with a family member. Like if you have a challenging family and you're not 100% sold on why you're doing something, you ever do that? You're like, I think I know why I'm doing this, but then they start really asking you the question, you go, oh, I don't know. Um, we don't want to appear uncertain, so we want to wait until we're really sure, right? We're going to wait until we're really sure. A lot of people do have difficulty explaining the rationales for some of the treatment, especially if you're doing it on your own. Like if you're reading it yourself and then you're trying to implement it on your own, the benefit of having like a journal club or talking with your peers is really where you're going to practice that explanation. So you need to have that two-minute commercial where you're explaining, hey, this is, this is a great treatment. This is why we're going to do this. 
The last one, we like what we know. We don't really want to change because we know that we do this and it seems to work and we like it. And that's what we're going to do. So evidence-based practice or evidence-informed practice is a process of making informed clinical decisions. Research evidence is integrated with clinical experience, patient values, preferences, and circumstances. So the idea of evidence-based is purely in a research construct, but the evidence-informed brings the person back into that equation. So they're equal. They're used now kind of interchangeably, but they are slightly different. So when you look at this diagram, you have the clinical expertise, you have the best research evidence from the science, and then you have the patient on the other side, right? You can't just do things with people if they're not interested, right? Like even if it's a great idea. I mean, it's a great idea to exercise, like Ariel said, 150 hours a week, but do we? No. You know, so you have to kind of blend all of these together. Okay. The evidence-informed idea was to indicate that it was more person-centered. So you, essentially, clinicians, are gatekeepers between the research evidence and how it applies to their patients. So it's important that we as clinicians are getting a lot of new knowledge in and we're really integrating for ourselves, hey, this seems like a, a path that we want to go in. But then we also have to think about our patients. Is it the right fit for that group of people? Okay, so some of the steps, you probably all know this from, if you've been in school recently, you definitely know this. I have not, so I, 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 I put it up here for people who have not. Um, but at the very bottom, there's a nice little URL, and it, it, it's a nice program at Duke. It's a, from Duke University, and they kind of walk you through the steps of evidence-based practice. <clears throat> so first you assess the patient. You need to come up with a problem or a question that you're trying to answer clinically. <clears throat> Next, you construct that really good clinical question as if you were going to do a research project. You select the appropriate resources and conduct a search. And this is where a lot of people, I think, get stuck, is that they have the idea, they say, how come every time I see these right brain strokes, <clears throat> they're, very, they're, they're having a lot of trouble, like Dr. Barrett said, they're not turning their head. So if you haven't really researched spatial neglect, you wouldn't know to search for spatial neglect, but you have to start somewhere. So you have to start looking and acquiring evidence. Then, after you've acquired some evidence, you have to know how to appraise it. And a lot of people don't really take that step either. So they kind of read it and they, they jump right to the conclusion. They say, oh, that doesn't seem to fit. And they haven't really pulled it together. To apply it, you have to return back to the patient and integrate the evidence with clinical expertise, patient preferences, and apply it to practice. And that's really important because if it's not going to make a match with the patient or they're going to refuse to do it, it's not going to work either. And then you have to evaluate your own performance with the patient. And I think if you get this far, which would be very admirable and amazing, um, if you get this far, I think sometimes we evaluate it with too little information. So we stop too soon. We're like, yeah, it didn't really seem to work. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to what I know. Just as a general guideline, there are lots of different types of evidence. And I think that always, always, it seems that the randomized control trial is the one that you know, gets all the attention. But if you're looking for different types of things, all evidence is not created equal. So you really have to look. If you're looking for a treatment, a therapy, or an inter intervention, then you are looking at systematic reviews, RCTs. If you're looking at a patient experiences and concerns, though, qualitative studies are OK to look at, because that's what you're trying to do. 
Like for example, we have a cancer program. We're not looking for outcome in the same way in the cancer program as we are in the stroke program. We want to look at quality issues differently in the stroke patient versus the cancer patient who may not be going to recover, right? So depending on what you're looking at, this little table is a kind of a nice idea of how you can pick that. If you're looking at a, the prevalence of a condition or a complication, you can look at cross-sectional studies. Cost-effectiveness, there's lots of economic studies about therapy. And the disease course is just longitudinal studies. Okay. Clinical, clinician values or attitudes regarding evidence-based practice. I think if you survey people, and in this room, if I asked how many people are, are positive about evidence-based practice, everyone's going to raise their hand probably. There's very few people who are going to say, oh, no, I'm not for that. Um, but your attitude, you know, what are your attitudes towards new programs and concepts? So really do some self-reflection and think about it. Like, how do I react when people ask me to make a change in my practice? Do I get defensive and say, well, no, I, you know, what I'm doing is great. Do I say, wow, I'd love to hear more about that. Like, different people are different. So, but your attitude is going to spill over to our patients, right? Because if you don't really feel positive and engaged and really want to do that, then they're also going to pick up on the fact that you're not, you're not all for it. You're like, yeah, this is this thing we're trying. You know, our, our team is trying this new thing, and, and here we are. Let's, let's sit down and do it. That's a very different message than like, wow, we read this, and a lot of research is supporting the fact that this really seems to work in patients that have a similar thing to you. Are you willing to give it a shot? I would totally say yes to that. The first person, I'd be like, no, not, not so interested. Um, another question is, how often are you appraising your practice and your outcomes? Like, really think about that, because I think we sort of inherently, by writing our notes, think we're looking at our outcomes, but we're really looking at it in a very small way, right? We're looking at it in the day-to-day. -day. So when you have opportunities to look at things like e-rehab or any of the journal articles that you read where you see large groups of people with that kind of positive result, that helps you appraise the practice. So if you did it with seven people and six of the seven people seemed to be engaged in the process, they really liked it, you're, you might be onto something, right? But if only two of them did, you'd be kind of like, oh, I don't know. See, for me, I have to do hundreds before I make that decision because I feel like people are so different. And then lastly, I think, and really important, is what is your attitude toward change? Who loves change? <laughs> Who does? I do. I do. I love change. But I think 90% of the world would say not so comfortable with change. It's a lot of work. It's ugly. It's fussy, right? It's, it's messy. Change is messy. So I wrestle with this because in order to take a program and put it into place, you have to ask clinicians to change. And if you get too excited about it, they write you off because they're like, oh, she's crazy again. Here she comes. Now she's got something on her mind. And we got to keep away from her because look what's going to happen. Um, but I also have to be respectful of the fact, because I love change, I have to temper it down a bit so that I can kind of get in enough to get people to say, oh, maybe that's not as challenging as you're making it seem. <laughs> so the next part I want to talk about is building meaningful change. And so in putting this presentation together, because I do constantly ask myself, why don't we do this? Why? And you can ask my manager right here. I ask this question probably on a regular basis, probably at least two, three times a day. Um, and I found that there actually is implementation outcomes research. There's a whole branch of research just based on answering these questions. Did you know that? I didn't really know that, and I was so happy when I found it, because it, it's really helping me now. So again, why don't we readily embrace evidence-based <coughs> practice concepts? 
the first thing that comes up when you ask therapists or clinicians, nurses, case managers, anybody, time. Time constraints. How many people feel that time is a, a big challenge? If someone asked you to do something new, you'd be like, oh, I don't have time for that. Okay. Because that, that was what we got. I think familiarity with the literature is also up there. Um, a lot of people, it goes with time constraints, right? Because if you don't have time to implement something new, the likelihood that you're researching it on your time at work when you don't have time to do your work probably makes that one kind of low. In a lot of journals, the inability to access literature was cited very often. So how many of you feel you have easy access to literature at your job? So looking around the room, that's not that many, right? Now, a lot of centers, hospital-based places, have medical libraries that you maybe didn't get the code for, or you lost the code for, or you don't know how to access it. Um, I think things like up-to-date. How many of you have access to up-to-date? Like that's good for like beginning information. So right on our system at Kessler, that's part of our documentation system up-to-date. So if you get a a diagnosis that you don't know without even leaving the screen, we can hit up to date, type in the search, and at least get a little brief bit of, well, you can get quite a bit of information off up to date if you stay there long enough. <laughs> um, again, fear of appearing competent in front of patients, staff, and families. We don't want to, we want to feel competent. We don't want to look like we don't know what we're talking about. So if, we've, if we're delving into something new and it's a change we're not all sold on yet, we're not that likely to sell it really well. And this is my favorite, the too many other things to do in treatment syndrome. How many people have that? When someone asks you to, you know, how come we're not, you know, doing this program? Oh, I have too many other things to do in therapy. I mean, they have to go home. I have to make sure they can get in the tub. I have to make sure they can get dressed. And I have to make sure, right? So we do other things that aren't always evidence-based. And my challenge is, if you find something from the evidence and you think it's going to work, if it improved someone's movement and they could put their shirt on easier, would it be better to focus on improving the movement and let the shirt happen? Or is it better to work on the shirt and let the movement stay where it is? Right? And we don't think of it that way. We don't. We really think we're doing all we can possibly do in the time that we have when we're doing certain tasks. So ask yourself that sometimes. If you find yourself saying, I'd like to try something new, but I have too many other things to do, that might be a, a thing to think about. So there are some constructs that are relevant to changing behavior. And I highlighted the two that I think are most important. But first of all, the nature of the behavior. First of all, what needs to be changed? So in clinics, we're, we're always trying to promote kind of a programmatic approach, right? So if a person has a stroke at one of our Kessler facilities, they're going to get the same treatment at the other Kessler facility. Like we do it on a program level. So our amputees all have the same resources. They all have access, whether they come to Saddlebrook, whether they go to West Orange, whether they go to Chester, whether they go to Marlton. We're working as a big system and a team. So if somebody finds something that needs to be changed, we need to make sure that it's going to work in all the sites as well. Knowledge and skills is really the, the, the base of it. If you don't have the knowledge of the new process or the new evidence, you're not going to feel comfortable with your skills. So if you don't have knowledge and skills, are you willing to jump off the the board? No. No. The goal intention, you know, what are you aiming for? Beliefs about consequences and beliefs about your own capabilities. I think this is really um, a good one because I think people undersell themselves. They don't feel that they're able to do things that they really could make a big impact on because of the system. The system holds me down. I don't have resources. I don't have time. 
But I think that if you really explore it, your capabilities are much broader than you think. You need to have a plan for a goal, and then looking at the two aspects of the environment, the social environment and the physical environment, and any stress or emotion involved with change. When you change behavior, stressful, right? And that's why most people don't want to do it. <laughs> so there are different theories to explain behavioral change. Motivational are theories to explain change in people who haven't established an intention to engage in a particular behavior. So the approach that you need to use with a group of people that have not committed to a change is to try to motivate them, right? It's like being a coach. You're going in, here's the data, this is what they found. Look, this population is no bigger than ours. We could do this here. You can get people excited about it. There's action theories to explain the behaviors of people who are already motivated. So if you have a small group of people who are already motivated, you can go in and deal with that small group to get that action happening. And then the organizational theories explain change at the higher social and systems level. And I think in a lot of the talks today, you've heard about that. So with Dr. Barrett talking about how we had the administrative input, we had the input from the foundation, like having those layers of input and support are what are going to drive the meaningful change. Because we can change things, but then it doesn't stick. Has that ever happened? You change something, it doesn't stick? Yeah. <laughs> we'll be talking about that. So there are some different kinds of outcomes here. And I'm going to go over these in the context of how we put our programs in place. But just to explain them a little bit, implementation outcomes are things like acceptability. How acceptable is the change to the group of people that need to change? How easily is this going to be adopted? How appropriate is it? How much does it cost? Is it feasible? Then fidelity we're going to talk about a little bit later. Um, but that's keeping true to what the change design was. Because I think often we implement change, but then we kind of manipulate it so it works sort of to what we know, and then it's no longer representing the actual evidence base. And then we've lost at that point. Penetration and sustainability are what Dr. Barrett was talking about with like the, the, social, the spatial neglect network. We, have, we got it into a lot of different places, and now it's sustaining itself because of the network that's been developed. Service outcomes, I think, are easy because we do this every day. We're looking at how efficient is something, how safe is something, is it effective, is it equal? Do we deny certain people and not others? Is it you know, patient-centered, and is it timely? And then the patient satisfaction and client outcomes are things like satisfaction, improved function, and reduced symptomatology. So those are pretty clear. So when we talk about changing clinical behavior, do we think that the evidence-based practice is agreeable to our practice? How many times has somebody read something and maybe shared it, and then people kind of go, hmm, hmm, they're not really sure? Adoption, do we have the intent to adopt evidence-based practice? Like, do, are we committed as a team? And it has to be a team effort. You, you can have the key people who are going to drive it, but you still got to get everybody involved. So if they, you, you know, you got to start with that motivation, you got to get them involved. Appropriateness. Do we perceive the fit or relevance to our own practice, ourselves, and our patients? And that's a really highly loaded one. So that's a word in my mind that makes me almost cringe sometimes because when I'm trying to implement a program, people will say, oh, they're not appropriate. Do you get that? That person's not appropriate. Have, have, you, have you experienced this? Because it, it happens on a daily basis. I mean, even in the best of places. Um, and then feasibility. Can we successfully use this in our practice? Fidelity is a really, really important topic <laughs> because when you're going to 
translate evidence-based practice into your clinic. Was the intervention implemented as it was prescribed in the original protocol or as it was intended by the developers? So if you read an article about something and you say, oh, I want to put that in place, and then you do it, but you use five different tools and three different tests, are you putting it in place? No. You're making a change, but now can you use the excitement of the outcome you're expecting if you don't do it the way it was designed? No. But we do it all the time. We do it all the time. <laughs> I'm going to explain to you. Um, fidelity was also the overriding concern of treatment researchers who strive to move their treatment into practice. And it's necessary to produce the expected outcomes. So if you want to use evidence-based practice outcomes, you want to achieve that outcome. Like if ten, 7 out of 10 people, arm gets stronger if you do this, then you want to make sure that you're using that program that got them there. And you can't start tweaking it, although we do. So just looking at the difference between existing practice versus your evidence-based ideas, you have your traditional treatments. In the existing practice, it's convenient, right? We know what we're doing. We're coming in. We're driving in. We're going, oh, I got that person today. Oh, they have to work on putting on their shirt. I think I'll work on putting on their shirt. We look at what the clinician likes. Like if a clinician is not a neuro-based person and they get rotated to neuro and they want to do strengthening exercises for instead of motor control, they're not going to get the same outcome, right? And their preference is probably not to be forced to change, to stay in ortho. But if you have a system that wants you to grow and develop in lots of ways, you have to kind of look at, at those things as well. I mean, it's not to say that you shouldn't focus in one area that you love the most because I'm a neuro person, always have been. Um, and clinical wisdom. You have your own clinical wisdom based on your existing practice. You've looked at your own history patterns. You know the types of people that you see and what you've done that's worked before. So those are all in existing practice. With evidence-based, it's much more standardized. You can reproduce it. It's been proven effective because you read the articles. And it's usually not just one. By the time you're looking at evidence-based practice, you should have really researched lots and lots of articles. Um, a great way to do that is journal clubs. If you have like even lunch times where 15 or 20 minutes, hey, let's talk about the outcomes of this article. And look, it matches the one we did three weeks ago. And look, this one says something different. And what's different about the population here versus here? So you really do have to appraise the evidence. And then most evidence-based practice is showing improved outcomes. That's why it became evidence-based. So the challenge is, why not give it a try? Just try it. You like it. Um, so trial processes and treatment that patients who fit most of the criteria might show benefit. So this is where it gets kind of tricky because if you're very rigid with how you read research articles, you know that in order to get those outcomes perfect, they have all kinds of exclusion criteria. And so as soon as someone doesn't fit something, someone in the, in the, in the group will say, oh, they're not appropriate. <laughs> so they don't fit in. And then this one doesn't fit in. And before you know it, the whole program's not appropriate. So I feel like if it, and I'm going to give you some examples, look for more global themes. Like if you're looking at improving arm function, you're looking at improving visual spatial neglect, look for those things and see what types of tools and resources are out there for that. I would say try things and record your experiences for later review. So keep track of what you're doing and what results you're seeing. And you can look at it in terms of function, which I think you always should do. Because like Dr. Barrett said, doing something on a piece of paper doesn't translate into being able to find your fork. <laughs> you know what I mean? You've got to use your fork to find your fork. Um, adopt a what have you got to lose by trying mentality. 
So if you've read something, even if you do this on your own with a couple of your patients, if you have a stroke patient, you want to try it, nothing happens, they're no worse for it, but now you found out nothing happened with that particular person, but would you stop there is my question. See, I probably wouldn't. I'd probably keep going, and I'll explain to you how I did that. Um, and trial for a consistent amount of time before analyzing your effectiveness and keeping fidelity in mind. So you need to do it the way it was intended for a duration of time that was prescribed so you can see if, if you're getting any of the effects. All right, so why don't we implement constraint-induced movement therapy already? That's my question. That is my overriding question of the last, let's see, I've been doing this probably since 1990. Um, so I'm going to review a brief history, very brief, review some basic concepts just so you know what we're talking about in case you don't. How many of you are unfamiliar with constraint-induced movement therapy? Any unfamiliar? Okay. Yeah, you, you're a wise guy over there. See, we got the, the famous person in the back is unfamiliar. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, so you, you, we want to discuss old thoughts, you know, the idea that things are not covered by insurance, the patient was not appropriate, here's the appropriate word, um, because in the early constraint studies, people had to have a decent amount of wrist and hand function, didn't they? If you read any of them. So it became like that 10-10-10 thing. If they don't have 10 degrees of this, and 10, then they're not appropriate, so therefore we don't do it. But what Ariel was talking about, about neuroplasticity, we know that if we do not do something with mass practice, high repetitions, you're not getting any neuroplasticity. So to deny the people who don't have enough movement to be appropriate for the exact criteria seemed kind of silly to me. So back in the day, I just started doing it on everybody I had, if, no matter what they had. If they had this, I would just do this until this became this. You know? And it doesn't show the same outcome but it shows a progress toward the outcome. So if it works for your hand, my thinking is it's got to work for your shoulder and your elbow eventually, right? So the history of CIMT, I think one of the first proposed CIMT for rehab was back in 1999. Google Scholar is currently listing somewhere around 73,000 articles about constraint-induced movement therapy on all kinds of things. The EXCITE trial was done between 2001 and 2003, and guess what? This is not new information anymore. <laughs> so when we say, oh, that's experimental, I mean, no, it's not anymore. The ideas here are things like mass practice. Ariel was talking about a lot of that. The technology as an adjunct really helps with that because you can have somebody doing things they're not aware that they're doing as much repetition. Shaping is the idea of breaking the movement down into a small piece, practicing that small piece repetitively for hundreds and hundreds of times, and then turning it into a task practice where you're actually using the whole pattern. So constraint is a little bit tricky for people to understand sometimes. Um, we want to look at something like the motor activity log because that's using daily activities like try to open a drawer, try to wipe off your sink, try to turn on the, the faucet. And then there are behavioral aspects to CIMT because it was based in behavioral neuropsychology. So Taub was a behavioral neuropsychologist. And so the idea that your attitude matters in programs, nothing matters more than your attitude here about how much you think that they can do. And they don't think they can move. I don't know, have you had stroke patients say to you, oh, I'll say, show me what you can do with that left arm. They'll go, I can't, I'm a I, I had a stroke. Did people say that? He said, well, let me see. No, I can't. I can't move it. I said, well, just try. Just try. How about this? Just try to wiggle it. And all of a sudden, they can pull it back a little. And I go, see, you do have something. See, you had thought you had nothing five minutes ago. Now you have something. 
So if you have something, we can work with something. That something might just be very boring in the beginning because all you're doing is kind of just trying to wiggle that arm, wiggle that arm, but eventually it becomes the flexor synergy pattern in most people. But sometimes you do need to trick them. So I've had therapists say to me, they're not really moving. You know, like if, if you put their arm up on something, you tell them to pull it off a bolster and they'll be like, they didn't do that because they leaned. I'm like, shh, don't tell them because they don't know yet. So you let, them, you let them lean like 50 times and they do it. And then all of a sudden you put it up there and say, well, this time I want you to try one thing different. I want you to not move your body. And then they'll, they'll start to do it and it'll start to go and it will fall. And yes, gravity helps you. I'm not saying you, you, you got to use trickery. Because once they open their mind to the idea that they can do something, they've now bought in. They're motivated, and they're going to listen to you. They're going to try things, and they're going to do things in ways that you will not believe. So the conclusion of the Excite trial in 2006, now that's a long time ago, right? A long time ago. Was that among people who had a stroke within the previous three to nine months, CIMT produced statistically significant and clinically relevant improvements in arm motor function that persisted for at least one year. If you do nothing but read that statement and leave here and think, why don't we do this? I don't want to know. I'll go blah, 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 blah. No, really. I mean, it, it's just, you, you just have to ask yourself. I know why it's difficult to do things, but I don't know why. Okay, let's see if I can do this now. So, this, where is it? Pam, where is it? On the top? In it? Okay. So this is a gentleman who we used the Wolf Motor Function Test and Constraint-Induced Movement Therapy. It is the outcome measure that was used in the EXCITE trial. So again, if you're going to implement something, don't use a different outcome tool, right? You want to get the same outcome, so use the tool. So this is only one sample piece of this test. He has to pick up the pencil and turn it over. There we go. It's coming. And this is on admission, so he's been here maybe a day. Our length of stay here is about 18 days. Grab it. Okay, take your time. You got plenty of time. See, I'm yelling at him already. <laughs> I'm glad that California's staying over in California. Yeah, we tell them to take their arm and put it in vacation land. Beautiful. You want to help them, don't you? Nice. You do. <laughs> we did too, but we didn't. So that was his beginning. Well done. Okay, and now this is about two and a half weeks later. You better, anybody who's sleeping better stay awake. Because it's a lot different. Okay. So when you can see something like that happen repeatedly, this is just one patient, this happens all the time if you take the time to do the shaping, the task practice, and the high repetitions and you give them homework, they do things in their room, and they really improve. And when they see it, then they're like, oh my gosh. You know, it's not perfect yet, but they're, they're, much, they're much happier. So now, how do we implement this at Kessler? It's, a, it's an ongoing work in progress, but we have a stroke program committee, which I'm sure most hospitals have, where you're kind of evaluating your own programs and you're bringing new things to the table. So we have an upper extremity task force, which is a component, and we have people from all the different Kesslers represented on this task force, and we decided that our goal is to implement constraint at all the Kessler campuses all the time, not just this week, not just two weeks from now, 
Um, we did an education series. We created it and shared it with the therapy teams at all sites. And this is constantly ongoing because think about it. How many times do people leave in a year where you work? For various reasons, right? But you get a group of people that are finally getting it and then three people leave, right? And they were the ones who were on that unit. So now the new people, you got to rotate up. So you're always doing a, an educational process. So mentoring and practice using the assessment tool first, and then doing workshops on the shaping component, like how to break down the movement. Once you see where the person's breaking down, knowing where to treatment plan, because I think that's the problem. It's very hard for people to analyze the activity and pick the right thing. If they pick the wrong thing, they don't get a result. And then where are we? Not appropriate. <laughs> also, monitor your outcomes, admission and discharge. You have to think like a researcher when you implement research-based practice. You have to have pre and post. Otherwise, you have no idea. I mean, you can, in, you can infer and you can say, oh yeah, they look a lot better. But really do the outcomes pre and post. So the challenges, I think, to implementation for the constraint program are the appropriateness. Despite the awareness of literature, many still feel very rigid in the interpretation of the criteria and it limits their view in who could participate. So as you do an evaluation with your stroke patient, if they only have minimal shoulder movement, they'll say, oh, they're not appropriate and I have to do something else. The adoption piece was a little easier because we do have some really excited key champion people at Kessler who are willing to really push the cause forward at all the sites. Feasibility, is it feasible? Now in the past, people would say we don't have time and it's not covered by insurance and it's experimental, but in 45 minutes you can do two shaping tasks and a task practice for 15 minutes and avoid the too many other things to do syndrome because I only have 45 minutes with the person and what am I going to do? Well, I would say spending 45 minutes practicing putting on the shirt poorly or practicing shaping and trying to put the shirt on better, I don't know. If I had that choice, I'm picking the second one. So if you have me around, I'm, I'm always asking, why don't we do this? Um, and fidelity, it's the most challenging aspect. I think there are so many deviations from protocols because constraint-induced movement therapy does not have a protocol protocol. It's telling you to do these things, do the shaping, do the task practice, and follow it up, and then help people learn how to activity analyze and move it forward. It's so individualized because everybody's arm function starts at a different point. So that's, I think, what makes it a little bit harder in very large spaces because as soon as someone's not there on top of you saying, how come you're not doing shaping for this? They go, I don't even know what to shape. I don't know what that means. And then you're back to that kind of thing. But we have made significant inroads. I think that we've had our West Orange campus is now on board with Saddlebrook and our outpatient divisions are now working with us so that when we transition someone from inpatient to outpatient, all of those people can expect to know that people in outpatient understand what they've been doing. Okay, now I'm going to talk about a different program, which Dr. Barrett just outlined, and the CAF-NAP and the CAF-PAT process. This is a lot different, and it's a good example of this implementation outcome research. So we were working with the Kessler Foundation. We adopted the CAF-NAP very early on because we were part of the data collection process, as she told you. We did a lot of education to the OT teams to promote screening for neglect, and about 70% of the people, you know, right and left, that's combined, um, demonstrated some form of neglect. So in the past, people would say, oh, yeah, they don't have neglect. I don't see any neglect. And by doing the CAFNAP and working with the foundation, we've been able to realize that there are actually three areas of neglect 
that people don't know about. So when we think of neglect, we just think of not paying attention to the one side. But there's three levels. There's the on your body kind, where they think that this is their husband's arm, and they don't put the shirt on, they just dress one side. There's the out at arm's reach, which is peripersonal space. So they have problems with things like on a table or looking at a computer or anything, you know, like out here. And then you have the extrapersonal space problem. And those problems are big space. And those are the people I think that get missed most often. But people with neglect, like Dr. Barrett was saying, besides the glasses, you'll have people who start moving and they're very tentative. And I had a person recently who was left-handed and he really, he would hold his spoon in a very gross way. And everyone's saying, oh, he has problems with his hand. He had movement in his hand. He had neglect. But people didn't perceive that as neglect. They perceived it as a motor control, fine motor problem. So they're going to work on holding the spoon. But really, he needs to work on widening his space so that he can pay attention to where that spoon is and be able to get it to his mouth. So we develop competencies and master trainers who are overseeing the mentoring to ensure that new staff adheres to all the policies and procedures there. All stroke patients are regularly screened within three to five days of admission. And we've had anyone with positive neglect scores indicates a trial of the PRISM training. So now we have, we do the assessments. If they get any positive score, and some people say, oh, well, they only got a two. And so should I really do the PRISM? I'm like, yeah, I would try it and see what the results are. And after four days, if they're perfectly zero all the time, okay, maybe then you could drop it. But really, any positive score should trip that. So the protocol was developed at the Kessler Foundation using the PRISM system. Again, Dr. Barrett already told you this. It was a 10-day protocol. It was easily completed in inpatient rehab because people are here. If we get them in that third day, most of them are here at least 13 days. We've done such a good job at our campuses in getting our OTs trained in this that even people who see them on the weekend can do the PRISM training and they don't even miss a day on the weekend anymore. So that's been a really positive thing. Um, we are monitoring the outcomes using a pre and a post calf nap and you know that's a little bit of trouble, right? Because people are great with the beginning one and what about the end one? Oh, I had too many other things to do. Too many other things to do syndrome. And then the network was created to expand this to reach this evidence-based practice within the division and to external hospitals. So when we implemented this, let's look at this as opposed to the constraint questions here. Acceptability. Teams readily accepted the program. They saw the benefit for the patients right away. They could see it. We were collecting the data on site. They could see it. Adoption. It was very easy to adopt because the protocol is very specific. It's organized, right? And it happens as a natural extension of the ADL process for OT. Appropriateness, yes. When you tell somebody 70% of people have, have neglect, but they're not necessarily being identified, you know, because we thought they didn't have neglect. But that's a pretty risky thought, right? Because you, you might be right 30% of the time. It was very cost effective. The calf nap, there's no additional cost at all. It's just using the, the process. And the calf pet, the cost was under a capital budget expense. So it's less than $2,000 for the kit. Around, maybe it's 25 now. Feasibility, the team felt this was very feasible and, and easy to implement. The fidelity was very easy in this one because the protocol is the same no matter what, no matter how severe the neglect, whether it's personal, peripersonal, extrapersonal, right or left, you're doing the same protocol. So it made it very easy for people to say, oh, positive score, prism, positive score, prism, and they know what prism means. When you say that they have a problem with their motor control and constraint, Yes, it will benefit them, but you really have to work hard. And a lot of people 
have difficulty with that one. Okay, the penetration means how far could we push it in. We got the, the spatial neglect network up and running, and that grew and expanded within the division and then now externally. And sustainability, we now have the spatial neglect monthly WebEx calls where we're talking about successes. We always start the call off with something great that happened with a neglect patient this, this court this month. And we use it to problem solve and share success to keep the program vibrant and expanding. And it's exciting, like when you're part of it and you get to sit on that call, you know, I mean, sometimes the call is not super exciting, but, but you know what I'm saying? Like you're hearing what other places are doing and you're feeling validated that some of your challenges are also their challenges. And we share, hey, this worked for us, maybe this will work for you. So just to give you a little example of some pre and post calf pat people, on day one, this person, and you saw um, Dr. Barrett did the star cancellation and some of those, this is on our bits that I think Ariel showed you. This is a Bell's cancellation test, which I use with all my PRISM adaptation people. I do it at day one, day five, and day 10. And if you look here on the right, they missed 28 things on the left. And you can see their search pattern was very localized to the right. If you look to the next one on day 10, they only missed 11. And that's just 10 days after using the PRISMs. That's pretty, pretty significant. And it's not quite as clustered. They're actually moving around more. So that means that their scanning pattern itself is improving. Just to give you a little bit of a history on this person, on admission, this person's CAFNAF score was a 21, which is severe. The FIM scores on admission were dependent to max assist for transfers in ADL. The barriers were severe neglect, poor awareness of position in space, and decreased balance as a result. This person could not even sit up on the mat edge. At discharge, which was probably about two and a half, three weeks, she had a calf nap of eight. Her FIM scores were moderate assist to supervision for seated ADL, and there were improvements in her awareness of her left neglect, orienting her head position, which improved her ability to sit so she could sit. During her family training, she was so proud of herself, she sat on the edge of the mat while her family was sitting without falling over. So that was her very exciting thing. Um, Currently, I think Dr. Barrett alluded to this, they're analyzing the outcomes from a lot of the data that they've collected. So they're the early phases to see if people are performing, people who get the PRISM adaptation are performing better on their FIM scores. And the early indications are yes, but we've got a lot of data left to collect. And this is the kflearn.org. So if anybody's interested, that's a resource for you. For more information about Kessler Foundation and our researchers, go to kesslerfoundation.org. That's K-E-S-S-L-E-R-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N dot org. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter.